0: Luke chapter 24, have entitled this message A Joyful Goodbye. A Joyful Goodbye, because it deals with Jesus' return to glory and the joyful response of his followers. And quite honestly, um, I get some joy in finishing preaching through this book. If you wondered how long we've been in this book, it's been a long time. We began in the book of Luke in May of 2020. May of 2020. And I don't know if you remember, but I began preaching to an empty auditorium in the book of Luke. The first two messages were, were in here, and there was nobody in here, and it was uh, the third week that we were in the book of Luke that we actually came back together and started to assemble. So um, I'm really grateful really grateful for for you sticking it out with me and and for what we have learned. When you take into account that Luke himself wrote more than 25% of our New Testament, it's taken a while for us to get through the book of Luke, but there's been a good reason because there's been a lot there. Between Luke and Acts, Luke has written more than 25%. And in the book of Acts, he sums up the whole book of Luke for us in the first two verses. He says this in Acts 1. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. And that's the sum of the book of Luke. And he, he sums it up in two verses in the book of Acts, but it took him 24 chapters to write the book. And so this morning... Our text deals with that day that Christ was taken up, and it deals with the commands that he gave. And I would submit to you this morning that last words are really important. Last words are really important. The last words that you hear from somebody are pretty important. And Jesus' last words are really important for us this morning. And you might be tempted to think that these words were just for his apostles, just for his disciples. And I would submit to you, if, you're, if you view it that narrowly, you're missing the point. It's for all. These words are for all who would come after him. And so these words are just as relevant today as they were whenever they were penned by Luke. So we've turned to Luke chapter 24. Before we, before we read it, I want to pray. And I want to ask you to do me a favor and pray for Pastor Andy. Um, how many of you have suffered with a kidney stone? He's doing the same right now. He's doing the same right now, he's been doing so all week, and so I'd really appreciate it if you'd pray for him. But um, I want us to pray this morning and ask God to open our eyes to receive truth from Luke chapter 24, so you join me in prayer this morning. Father, you tell us that your law is perfect, and I pray this morning that it would revive our souls. You tell us that your testimony is sure and I pray this morning that it would make our simple minds wise. You tell us that your precepts are right. May they this morning bring joy to our hearts. You tell us that your commandments are pure. Oh, Father, this morning may, may your commandments enlighten our eyes. May it be more desirable to us than gold. May it, may it be sweeter in our mouths than, than the sweetest thing we've ever eaten, I pray. Make this to be so, I ask, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. Luke chapter 24, verse 36. We're going to read through the end of the chapter. As they were talking, let's remind ourselves before we go even further. Remember last week we saw that that Christ appeared to two people on the road to Emmaus, and, and no sooner had they gotten home, sat down to eat with him that, that their eyes were opened as to who he was and what he was doing, and then he disappeared out of their midst. And it says that those two followers of Jesus went back and got on the road and went straight back to Jerusalem to find the, the eleven gathered in the upper room. And so, this morning, this is where we pick up the account. Verse 36, as they were talking, So this would be the 11 and the two two who've come back to give the report. Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace to you. But they were startled. Duh. And frightened and thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them... They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate before them, and he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures, and he said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer, and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed in his name to all the nations." beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Then he led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. While he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple blessing God. This morning, we want to see Jesus in action, and, and we want to understand that, that the first part of our text up to verse 49 deals with the night and the early morning after he rose from the dead, and then in verse 50, 40 days have passed, 40 days have passed. Luke doesn't give us all that details, those details, but, but we're dealing with the day that he rose again, and then we're dealing with the day that he ascends into heaven, so we're dealing with two different days here. But We want to see Jesus in action, and first of all, we want to see Jesus rebuking. Once again, Jesus is going to have to rebuke. And we have seen a pattern in this last chapter of the book of Luke. We've seen a pattern that that starts with disbelief and confusion. We saw that with the women in verse 4. They were confused when they came back to the tomb. We saw it. We saw it with the two going to Emmaus in verse 13. They were confused, and we see it here in verses 33 through 36. We have the disciples who are, they're confused, and they're in disbelief. The two that have come back who have seen Jesus, and they said, we have seen him, they're in disbelief. Now, the disciples don't know what to do with this. They're afraid whenever Jesus appears. So after we've seen disbelief, we have seen a rebuke every time. With the women at the tomb, the angels rebuked them. Remember that back in verse 5? Why do you seek the living among the dead? With the two on the road to Emmaus, Jesus himself rebuked them. He's was like, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer and do all these things? And again, Jesus is going to rebuke his disciples here in verses 36 through 43. But we've also seen this. That in all three of these cases, they were pointed to directly where you and I need to point our attention and never let it get swayed from. They were pointed to the word of God. The women were pointed to Jesus' words in verse 6. The angel said, remember what he said to you. Remember what he said to you. Then in verse 27, Jesus himself takes those two from the road to Emmaus, and takes them all the way through the Old Testament. We talked about that last week, how he takes them all the way through the Old Testament, and now again, Jesus is going to take the 11 in the upper room, and he's going to open their eyes, and he's going to explain all these things to them. So the rebuke comes from Jesus in verse 38. Why are you troubled, and why do doubts arise in your heart? interesting because if we remember the whole point of why Luke wrote this book and we go back to the very beginning he writes it to a guy named Theophilus that he would be certain about things and in the very last chapter he has to deal with doubts that arise I pointed it out last week to us I pointed out again it is a normal thing it's not a great thing but it is a normal thing for followers of Jesus to have doubts What you do with those doubts, though, is so important. If you turn away from the Word of God to get your answers, you're going to be led astray every time. But if you turn to Christ Himself in His Word, you're going to get right answers about your doubts. I can't tell you how many times I've talked to believers who are struggling. And and let's be honest, we all at various times, we struggle with whether or not this is really real or not. Do you ever get that way? Or am I the only one in this room that ever gets this way? You know, is what we're doing really real here, God? Because at times, I, I do the thing that I tell everybody who comes to my office not to do. I live at the feeling level. Anybody else guilty of living at the feeling level? Yeah. I live at the feeling level, and sometimes it just doesn't feel very real. In fact, it feels kind of gross. It feels like all these things that you've told us to do, God, I'm trying to do it because I'm like the most perfect one of all the believers in Johnstown. I'm the only one who's holding it all together. I'm like the prophet Elijah, and it's not happening. Where do we go with those doubts? Well, three times we've seen it here that whenever people are doubting right on the heels of Jesus doing exactly what he said he was going to do and, and rise from the dead, after he's told them over and over, and then he goes ahead and he does it, they're still doubting. The angels and Christ himself point us directly to the word of God. Okay? I know, I know some of us are hard-headed, and it takes like three times to get it through our heads. I, I just want to be clear on this again. Are you listening to me this morning? When you have doubts, church, where do you turn to? God's word. You say this, I don't even know where to go. Well, that's why God's given to you shepherds to help you. He's given to you friends who who are in the word of God. And and here's the thing that's hard for all of us to do. I'm going to just put my finger right on the pulse of the problem. We're too proud to admit that we're struggling. We're too proud to admit that we're struggling, so we never go ask for help. And if we never go ask for help and we're too proud to admit it, what are we going to do? We are going to spin our wheels and just stay in the same place, aren't we? So Jesus now comes to his disciples. They're very disoriented. He says, why are you troubled? There's an interesting thing I want to point out, and this is free this morning, okay? The Bible tells us, the Bible tells us in 1 John chapter 3 and in Philippians chapter 3 that we're going to have a body like Jesus, right? Right? How many of you believe that? I'm going to have a body like Jesus, a resurrected body. Yeah, I can't wait. Jesus had a physical body that had scars, but he was able to go through walls and stuff. Oh, I can't wait. Isn't that going to be cool? I mean, be honest. Not only that, based on what I read here, we're going to be able to eat with our glorified bodies. Praise the Lord. That's one of my favorite things to do is eat. Eat. Now, I'm not big on broiled fish. I'm hoping there's T-bones, okay? But, but, but here's the thing. Our resurrected bodies are going to be amazing, folks. They're going to be amazing. That was free, okay? That's not really the point of the message, okay? But I wanted to point that out because it's right here, okay? And so we can establish what, what our resurrected bodies are going to be like. Jesus shows them, getting back to the text, his hands and his feet, okay? Okay? He, he shows them his hands and his feet. They can see it for themselves, right? Okay? I don't know about you, but, but if, if, if I saw somebody who had had a giant spike driven through the wrist, I would recognize the scar. Anybody else recognize the scar? I think I'd recognize that. If, if, I, if I saw a man who's in a pair of sandals and he shows me his feet and I see holes and I see places where that spike was driven through both those feet, I'm going to recognize that and I'm going to be like, this must be real, right? But notice their response, verse 41, have you ever been in such disbelief that like you cannot believe what just happened happened and you are just like so happy but you're not really sure it really happened or not? Okay? It's kind of like being a Cleveland Browns fan when they win. <laughs> I can say that because I've been a lifelong fan, okay? You're just like, I'm in total disbelief. They won. Did it really happen? Yeah. This is much greater, though, in verse 41, while they still disbelieve for joy and were marveling. And here's, here's what Jesus does, and I love this, and we've seen this several times. Do you see the patience of Jesus here? If I'm Jesus, I'm like, come on, idiots, stick with me here, right? He says, okay, got something to eat? So he takes it and eats it, and he eats it in front of them. And this had such a profound effect. I want you to see what a profound effect this had, the very act of Jesus taking something and eating. Because later on in the book of Acts, Luke records an an incident where Peter is evangelizing. Turn with me to Acts chapter 10. This is so cool. In Acts chapter 10, Peter's evangelizing. He's talking to a, a Roman soldier official named Cornelius, okay? He's a big shot, right? And as he's evangelizing Cornelius, in, in Acts chapter 10, he says this, and he's, he's sharing the gospel with him, um, verse Verse 37, he says, You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. He's saying, Cornelius, remember that guy Jesus, okay? Remember when you were there in, in Israel and what he was doing, Right? He says, verse 39, we are witnesses of all that he did both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree, but God raised him on the third day and made him to appear not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses who ate and drank with him. That was so profound in Peter's mind that Jesus took that piece of fish and ate it. And and Peter is like, I know what I saw. Ghosts don't just take food and make it disappear. Spirits can't do that. He was alive. He was there. He ate with us. It reminds me of this. One of the great promises of the end time is this, that one day we will sit down and have a meal with our Savior. We're going to sit down and have a meal with him. It's called the marriage supper of the Lamb. And so this is fresh in Peter's mind when he's talking to Cornelius and you would think, you would think that it would be enough, would you not, that Jesus appeared, that he showed him his scars, that he ate with them? You would think that would be enough for the disciples, and in Jesus' mind, that would be enough to prove that he is alive, and, and like, let's get on with the next step of the program, right? The second action I want you to see Jesus doing now is Jesus teaching. Jesus rebukes, and now Jesus teaches. He instructs them. Again, as before, the disciples are directed and led right into the word of God. Do you see it here with me? Look at, look at verse 44. Then he said to, him, said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you. In other words, I'm reminding you of all the things that I already said to you. And now he says that everything that was written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Everything down to the last detail was fulfilled in Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. And he's pointing it out to them. I told you it was going to happen, and now think it through with me. All of this stuff happened as it was predicted in the, in the Old Testament. Then verse 45, then he opened their minds to understand the Scriptures. There's a really key idea here. You and I aren't going to get anything out of the Word unless God's Spirit opens our mind to it. Unless God Himself miraculously opens our hearts to receive it, it's just going to be like any other book. It's going to be reading like any other thing, which is why it's so important. And it's our model. You'll hear it a lot, even from the pulpit. Before we open up the word to preach to you, we pray. Because we know this, apart from God's Spirit coming and opening our hearts and and preparing our hearts to receive the Word of God, then this is just like a lecture that you could get in any hall at any given time. But when you have the living Word of God and you have the living Spirit of God opening hearts and minds, this is a power that cannot be resisted. And so, Jesus opens their minds and He points them back to truth. And it's really interesting that he goes this way, verse 45, he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and he said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. He goes back and gives them simple gospel again, doesn't he? He gives them simple gospel, I died, I was buried and I rose again. They had just witnessed and they had, they had just been confronted with the truth, the fact that he, had, that he had risen from the dead because they had looked at the wounds. They're, they can see the wounds as he's gesturing and talking to them. And here's the thing. Jesus isn't basing their knowledge on experience. He's basing it on the truth of God's word. Because here's the thing. Eventually, those disciples are going to die and if it was only based on the fact that they saw the risen Lord and that they saw with their own eyes the wounds and they saw him eat, eventually when they die out, then the story dies out with them, doesn't it? I want to be clear on this. Christianity isn't just for those who witnessed Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. It's for all. It's not just for those who, who had a firsthand eyewitness account of this stuff. It's for all who hear truth and believe it. And now Jesus is modeling for his disciples how to share his truth. He's modeling for them, just like he's done for the, for the three years of his ministry. And I gotta think, have you ever wondered and ever, ever thought to yourself how cool it would have been to be a part of the first century church? You ever thought about how cool it would have been to be in Jerusalem when all this stuff was happening? And, and I think to myself, What set that church apart? One, it was new, it was fresh, but what set that church on fire? Well, there's two things. They were rooted in the Word of God, and they had the power of the Holy Spirit that had just come upon them. And when you have the living Word of God, and you have God's Spirit, which all believers are carrying around inside of them, amen? When you have the Word of God, and you have the Spirit of God, you have potential to accomplish amazing things for God. So here, the crucified Jesus in verse 45 opens their minds to understand the word and, and, and there's no more hidden truth. There's no more hidden truth. You know how we saw in Luke several times that, that this was hidden from them, they did not see it, that, that this, this, they, this wasn't revealed to them because their eyes were, no. There's no, more, there's no more shrouds on their hearts anymore. Christ has pulled it all back and now they can see clearly and they understand clearly. So Jesus has rebuked them. He's instructed them. And thirdly, I want you to see that Jesus commissions them. Jesus commissions them. Look with me at verses 48 and 49. You are witnesses of these things. There's there's another pattern that we've seen, and I haven't pointed out yet, in this this chapter. The three three accounts that Luke shares with us post-resurrection in chapter 24 they all end with witnesses going and testifying. When the women at the tomb realize what's happened, when the angel explains to them what, happened, what has happened, they go and they tell the disciples, right? They're witnesses to what they have heard. When the two on the road to Emmaus, when they realize that they have been sitting down at dinner with Jesus and he just disappeared from them, they immediately head back to Jerusalem and they're witnesses to the truth that they've just seen. Now, Christ himself has come to the 11, and before he's done, he sends them out as witnesses. Okay? Once, that's interesting. Twice, that's a coincidence. Three times, there's something here, folks. Three times, there's something here. So now we see... That Christ, in verses 48 and 49, says this, You're witnesses of these things. Behold, I'm sending the promise of my Father upon you. What's the promise of the Father upon them that's coming? It's the promise of the Holy Spirit. And we have record of that in, in the book of Acts, where the Holy Spirit shows up on the day of Pentecost. You and I don't have to wait for the Holy Spirit to show up. The New Testament is clear with us that when you are regenerated, you become a new creature in Christ, the Holy Spirit comes and dwells within you. You don't need an extra measure of him. He's there in all his fullness. He's there. Okay? So he says, I'm sending you the promise of the Father, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Jesus is now commissioning them. He's sending them out. And those who have been changed by the gospel, these are our marching orders. These, are, this, this, these marching orders are for all believers. Whether or not you choose to believe that, that's on you. But here's the thing. If you have been changed by Christ, you have one mission in life, and that is to go make disciples. You can do a lot of good things with your life. You can raise a very happy family. You can, you can start a charity, and you can raise millions of dollars for people who are in need. You, you can give away all the money you ever earned to people, but if you're not making disciples as a follower of Jesus, you have missed the mark. We're all called to do it. And quite honestly, most of us really stink at it, and we know it. Anybody with me on that? That's our call, though. That's the one thing. I don't know about you, but I can't handle too many orders, and I can't handle too many directions. Just give me one thing. That's all Jesus did. He gave us one thing. Go make disciples. It's the one thing. So so that means individually as believers, our lives are be oriented this way. What am I doing to make disciples? Corporately as a church, what are we doing to help make disciples? What are we doing to further the mission that Jesus has given us here? Let's unpack this a little bit, because Jesus doesn't leave it for us to figure out how we do this. He tells us exactly how to do it, okay? It's not like he just gives the order and walks away and says, figure it out. You ever had a boss that did that to you? Hey, hey, I want this done. Figure it out. I'm going to figure it out while while playing Jenga or something, or I'm going to figure it out playing on my computer, right? Checking ESPN highlights. I'm going to figure it out that way. No, Jesus doesn't do that. First off, let's focus on the message. He just gave them the message in verses 46 and 47, didn't he? Okay? It's one thing to be given a mission, but we've been given a mission, and the message has been very clear. This is the message. Okay? Christ should suffer, and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. The first thing is is the message, and the message is this, it's it's the gospel in simple form. And implied in the gospel is the fact that we all need rescue, isn't it? (laughs) Okay, if Jesus died, was buried, and rose again, well, why? Because we all need rescued. Because we all are trapped in our sins. We all are not just trapped in our sins. We are condemned in our sins. You know what the world around you needs? It doesn't need another philanthropic, philanthropic society to, to raise money. It doesn't need another politician for sure. Amen? It doesn't need another self-help book written. It doesn't need another Oprah or Dr. Phil. It doesn't need another Joel Osteen who's telling us to live our best life now. You know what the world needs? It needs to be confronted with the fact that on its current course, it is going straight to hell, but Christ died so that they don't have to. It's what our world needs. It's exactly what our world needs. And that's why Jesus sends us out with this message. Can I submit to you, the message is still the same. The message must never change. And when the message changes, then we get really weird results. We get things that look like they're successful, they look like they're really growing, they look like good things are happening, but, but there's really no change in the people who are a part of it. Sadly, what we're seeing in our world today is that the message is being neutered. It is. The teeth are being taken right out of the message. Because the message is given in such a way, well, we want you to feel good about yourselves. No, the gospel doesn't, it wasn't given to us for us to feel good. The gospel was given to us for us to feel the weight of our sin. So that we could feel the relief of the rescue whenever Christ lifts that sin burden off of us. The gospel was never intended to make you feel good about yourself. It was to make you feel like you needed forgiveness, that you needed to repent. Notice he uses the word repent, and repent means to completely change one's direction. You see, the world we live in today doesn't want to change its direction. It just wants to modify it a little bit, make it a little better. No, the call for discipleship is a call for repentance, it's a call for repentance. Secondly, we've seen the message. I want you to see the means. Notice what he says in verse 47. This needs to be proclaimed. This needs to be proclaimed. It's, it's the Greek word caruso, which means to, to herald the news, like a, like a town crier would do. Okay, we don't have town criers today because we have the Internet. You need to know the town news, you just go to Facebook, right? I mean, it's, all of it's there, including the town gossip, right? We don't, we don't need town criers. But before there was mass communication, there was this thing called the town crier, and he literally would come to the center of town, and, and he would do it with gravity, and he would do it with authority, and he would, he would boldly proclaim whatever it is that he was sent to proclaim. And I want to be clear on this. Jesus gives us the authority to be his town crier's. Keep your finger here and go with me to Matthew chapter 28, which is a parallel passage to this. Lest you wonder if you, if you have the ability or the authority to share the message of hope that's the gospel, see what Jesus tells us. Verse 18, and Jesus came and said to them, okay. This is is on the last day. I believe this happens on his last day when he ascends. So he's repeating the message that he's already given to them in the book of Luke. Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Do you believe that, church? Does all authority reside in Jesus? So in other words, okay, if you confess that, now don't confess it yet. Take your words back, okay? If you confess that Jesus has all authority, that means that you are obligated to line up under his authority. So does Jesus have all authority? Okay. All authority is given to Jesus. In light of that, go, therefore, and what? Make disciples. This is your one thing. This is my one thing. All the authority comes from Jesus, and this is what I want you to do. If he had told us, I want you to stand in a factory and make widgets until you die, that would have been the one thing. But he's given to us something far greater and far better. He's given us the message of hope to share with the world. And it's done in His authority. And the means whereby we do it back in Luke is, is that we proclaim it. Now, does our, does our life need to match what we're, what we're proclaiming? Can I give you a little pro tip here? Don't go out and proclaim the gospel if your life isn't matching it up. There are plenty of Christians who are doing that right now. Right? I'm not saying you have to be perfect to do this, but what I'm saying to you is this, and, and, and can I be honest with you, social media is where we do this. We post our little Bible verses, and we, and we talk a good talk, and oh, our pastor was so awesome this morning, and then we go out, and we live like the rest of the world We cuss out the people that that make us mad. We tell them what we really think of them. And you're not going to treat me this way. And guess what? The gospel message is totally ruined. If you believe it, then live it. And if you believe it, then live it and proclaim it. If you don't believe it, then sit on your hands and put, put one hand over your mouth. Because you speaking it is not helping the cause of Christ. You say, then there's no hope for any of us. Yes, there is. There's forgiveness. And there's this thing that when we go out and we mess it up in the world, we own up to it, right? We own up to it. Too many of us are too proud to own up to the fact that we sin against the world. How many of you have sinned against the world? I have. I have. I have. So we have the message, we have the means. Notice the extent of this. Notice the extent of this. Jesus says this. He says in verse 47, it, be, it should be proclaimed in his name to where? All nations. When Jesus says all nations, does he mean all nations, church? Does he mean does he mean even Iran and Iraq? Does he mean the Sedan? does he mean North Korea? He does? You mean Jesus loves people that we as Americans don't love? You bet your bottom dollar he does. He does, and he wants the message proclaimed all. But if you go with me to Acts chapter 1, he gives us a plan for how we do it. See, not every one of us can be Rick Presley and go to India. I'm grateful that Rick went. I'm not not belittling him. I'm glad Rick got the opportunity to go, but not not every one of us is going to India. Most of you are like, praise God, because I don't like Indian food. That's me. (laughs) Notice how this works. Verse 8. Jesus says this. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. You will be my witnesses first where? Jerusalem. That's where they were, right? That's where they all were. You're going to be witnesses right where you are. Stop right there, church. Let me ask you a couple questions. Does Croton need Christ? Does Johnstown need Christ? About Sunbury? Centerburg? Mount Vernon? Westerville? New Albany? Yeah, go ahead and say it. They really need it, right? <laughs> Newark? I just named names that I pulled out of our directory. This is where we live, this is where it starts. This is where it begins. We reach where God has put us because people need Christ. People need the truth of the gospel. People need to have their lives changed. People need to be pointed to Jesus and say, Here's the one that you follow. Here's the one that you follow. And that's really what discipleship is all about. You keep learning Jesus. That's what it means to be a disciple, it means to be a learner. Jesus has modeled it for three years. You may not be an end-of-the-earth person, but you are a Jerusalem person. Can I say it again? You may not be an end-of-the-earth person, but you're a Jerusalem person. Keep going in Acts chapter 1. After Jerusalem, you go to Judea. <laughs> it's the next region out, right? Then you go to Samaria, and then he says you go to the end of the earth with it. Why do we support missions that are global? Because we want to take Acts chapter 1 and verse 8 seriously. Why do I get excited when someone like Rick invests his time and resources to go to India? Because he's taken that commission seriously. And, he's, and, and we're opening our eyes to ways that we can plug into what's happening in, in other parts of the world. So we have the message, we have the means. We have the extent, and what is the engine that drives it all? What is the engine that drives it all? Verse 49 in Acts chapter 24 says it's power from on high. Acts chapter 1 verse 8 says you'll receive, you'll receive power. That word in Luke chapter 24, that word in Acts chapter 1, it's the same word. It's the word where we get our English word dynamite. It wasn't pronounced that way in the Greek, but, but that's where we get our word dynamite. Is dynamite powerful? If I'd have been really cool, I'd have had some up on the hill and we'd have exploded it and I'd have proved it to you. I'm not that cool. I also don't want to go to jail today, okay? Here's the point. How many of you feel like you're powerful enough to share the gospel? Don't raise your hand. If you were thinking about it, don't do it. None of us are powerful enough to share the gospel. That's why we need divine power. We need God's dynamite to get it done. And he promises it. Verse 49, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. He's sending the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is what powers this engine, folks. It's not up to you and me. And when we do it in our own strength, it often falls really flat, doesn't it? Really flat. In John chapter 15, Jesus said this about the Spirit, that he would bear witness about Jesus and that he would empower us to do the same. That's all we're here to do. We're to bear witness about who Jesus is. And all of us have the Holy Spirit. So Jesus rebukes, Jesus instructs, Jesus commissions, and now Jesus departs. There's a 40-day gap between verses 49 and 50 here in the book of Luke chapter 24. And so when we come to verse 50. He leads them out as far as Bethany. Bethany isn't that far from Jerusalem. Remember, Bethany is where they staged, basically, before they came in on the triumphal entry, right? It's just on the other side of the Mount of Olives. He takes them out as far as Bethany And they're on the Mount of Olives, and he lifts up his hands, and he blesses them. I love this picture. This is a picture from an Old Testament priest, and an Old Testament priest would do this whenever the people were assembled. He would lift his hands up, and he would pronounce God's blessings on them. Now, is there anything magical about the hands? I know some of you think so, because whenever it comes time to sing in here, like, some of you are like, I kind of want to lift my hands, but... Lifting your hands is just a way of recognizing that God is great if that's what you're doing in your heart. Now, if you're doing it to be noticed, that's just a dumb way to be done, to do it. But the priest lifted his hands over the people and he pronounced blessing on them like, this is for all. Jesus, in his very last act, is acting as the priest for his followers. Do you see that? And and that act of blessing them and that act of praying for them doesn't stop because the word tells us that he's now at the right hand of the Father, what? Making intercession for us. He's praying for us. He's blessing us from the the right hand of the Father. So he's, he's prepared his disciple. He's done all the work that he came to do. He's brought glory to the Father. He's fulfilled everything that's been prophesied about him. His work is done. He has provided a way to be reconciled to the Father, and now it's time to go. He pronounces blessing on them. And Acts chapter 1 and verse 9 says that a cloud comes down and carries him to heaven. That's significant. We're not talking like a rain cloud. This is the Shekinah glory of God that comes down. And the way that the the language is written here, it's not just like a boop, and he's gone. Like on a spaceship. Like, you know, disappear, gone. No, literally, he's lifted. They're watching him go. And the whole while, he's pronouncing blessing on them. They're watching him go. And what's interesting is, and I want you just to see it. Go with me to Acts chapter 1. We've got a few minutes here. Go to Acts chapter 1 because Luke tells us something really important here. So, verse 9, when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven, okay, everybody look up here. If Jesus is disappearing, what are we all doing? Right? Right? While they're gazing into heaven, as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes. I got to believe they didn't even notice they were there at first because they're like, they're like, wait, who are you guys? White robes. And notice what they say. Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who is taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him going to heaven, and what they're reminding them is this, this is the down payment. The very way he left is the very way he's coming back. Amen. And he is going to return. Amen. He is going to return. And in fact, he's going to return, I believe, to the very spot that he left. He's coming right back to the Mount of Olives. He's coming right back there. And when he returns, it's not going to be like the first time he visited He's going to return in all power. He's going to have the crowns on his head. He's going to have the name written on his thigh. He's going to have the sword in his mouth, and he is going to come to judge the nations. Notice their response back in Luke. Verse 52. He's gone, and they worshiped him. They worshiped him. And and here's the thing. Now they can really worship him because their eyes have been opened. He's explained all this to them. There's nothing that that they don't understand now about why he was here and what what he was doing. And, And here's the thing, friends. If you're in Christ and you understand what he did and his redemptive work for you, I don't care what kind of lousy week you've had, I don't care what you're going through, every day becomes a day where you can worship God. And you can worship the risen Christ. They worship, and then they obey. Do you see it? They returned to Jerusalem. They did exactly what he told them to do in verse 49, right? What did he say? He told them, you stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. They're, out, they're already out of the city. They're at Bethany. I mean, I'm sure Peter, old Peter, would have done what? Okay, let's go up to see a galley. It's time to fish, right? No, no. New Peter says, no, let's go back to Jerusalem. Let's get back there because I don't know when the power and what the power is going to be, but I don't know when, it, when it's coming, but I don't want to miss it, right? And they go back. And they wait for the Holy Spirit. And notice what they're doing. Verse 53. They're continually in the temple praising God. They're continually in the temple. They're they're praising God for what he's done. And they're bearing witness to what's happened. And how do you suppose the religious leaders feel about that? They thought they stamped out the Jesus movement, didn't they? All they did was light the fuse that made it explode. So really, what's the take-home for us? Here's the take-home. What do we learn from Luke? Hopefully, we, we've received a certainty about the things that we've been taught, <laughs> right? And we get our marching orders, don't we? We're called to make disciples. Now, here's another thing. Are you, can you ever be too old to make disciples? Are you sure of that? There's no age clause. No. Can young people even make disciples? Yeah, they can. They can. If you're in Christ, you have the ability to make disciples. Because it's not your power doing it, it's Christ working through you to do it. And while we're doing that, we get the joy of being able to worship our risen Lord, and we get the privilege to obey Him. We get the privilege to obey him. So with joy, we leave the book of Luke. Don't stop me in the hallway and say, I never thought you were going to get through it. (laughs) Don't you dare. I will pray an imprecatory prayer upon you. (laughs) Just kidding. You can tell me I wasn't sure I was going to get there either. Next Sunday, we're gonna go to Genesis chapter 12. I know some of you like to read ahead. Genesis chapter 12. We're gonna pick up the lives lives of the patriarchs beginning with with Abraham starting in Genesis chapter 12 and we're gonna go all the way to the end of Genesis. Some of you are like, oh my goodness, really? You're gonna do it? Yes, we need it, we need it. Join me in prayer. Join me in prayer and then we'll sing together one final time. Father. What, a, what an absolute joy it's been to, for these past months, to be able to focus directly on Jesus, so that we might have certainty about the things that we've heard. We can't help but praise you, our risen Lord Jesus, we, we praise you. you there, there, there's no savior like you. No one even matches up. No one comes close. And it's our great delight to be able to be the ones who carry the message of hope in the gospel. This week, Lord, I pray that we would resist the urge to do it in our own strength, that we would do it in your strength. I pray that we would be busy pointing people to Jesus Christ, pointing people to the hope that's found in the gospel, pointing people to the truth of your word. Make these things to be so in our lives, I pray in Jesus' name, amen.